0: From Britain to the Bocachil, from Lummi to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Samamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen.
1: Hello and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 86, Yakult and the Big Burn. Before I dive into the episode, I wanted to announce here on the show that I have also started a YouTube channel. Right now, I have about 10 videos uploaded, and for now, I'm working on turning old episodes into videos, and I've dabbled in making some original content over there as well. Be sure and check it out if you can, and don't forget to subscribe over there too. Speaking of enhancing the reach of the show, there is also now an Instagram page. Links for both of those will be in the show notes. I'm going to try and get a few of these episodes recorded in advance because I've got a busy couple of weeks coming up, including attending opening night and the next two Mariners games following that. So this is just to be on the safe side in case I end up losing my voice again. A delay in episodes can be avoided this way. Also, the weekend before that, falling on Medal of Honor Day, is a tour I'm taking at Evergreen Washelli Cemetery in North Seattle, led by The Wandering Historian, going over all of the Medal of Honor recipients that have been buried there over the years. It's totally free, so you should check out his Facebook page for more info on that. It sounds like it's going to be a great time. While the Chinook tribes dominated the western regions of southwest Washington, the Cowlitz and Cliquitat tribes dominated the inland territories, including what is now central Clark County. The Cowlitz tribe occupied over 2.4 million acres at their peak and were separated into two groups, the Upper and Lower Cowlitz. The Shalishan language groups, Lower Cowlitz, spanned from near the Columbia's banks in present-day Clark County to as far north as Mossy Rock in present-day Lewis County. In 1811, explorers from John Jacob Astor's Pacific Fur Company met a small group of lower Cowlitz a short distance up the Cowlitz River from the Chinook Burial Mound off Coffin Mountain in present-day Longview. Coffin Mountain would actually be leveled during the curation of Longview to use for the building of roads, and thus it no longer exists. Trappers from the Northwest Company came up the Cowlitz River two years later and discovered members of the tribe there. The Cliquitat tribe originated near the Rocky Mountains to the east, but the hostilities presented by the Cayuse tribe drove many of them west. Some of them crossed the Cascade Range, blending with the Cowlitz to become the western Cliquitat. They, like the Cowlitz, relied on fishing, hunting, and harvesting fruits and root vegetables for their food. The Cliquitat were also noted for their outstanding horsemanship. Both tribes traded anything from dried fruit to slaves. Because they had tribal ties on both sides of the Cascades, the Klikitat thrived as middlemen between the coastal tribes and those living east of the mountains. Cowlitz women were known for their incredible ability to weave watertight baskets with beautiful and elaborate designs. The Cowlitz and the Klikitat were both decimated by the illnesses that plagued Northwest tribes in the 1820s and 30s. However, the Klikitat population was not as badly affected as the others, owing to its members' lack of exposure to Westerners. The Klickitat population was estimated to be between 700 and 800 by the arrival of Lewis and Clark in 1806 and just 410 by the federal census of 1910. A significant loss for sure, but far less terrible than the near-total annihilation of many other tribes. However, later in the 20th century, the recognizable Klickitat population declined owing to intermarriage with other tribes, particularly the Yakimas. Only 21 Klikatats were identified in the Evergreen State in 1970, with several of them living on the Yakima Reservation. The Cowlitz people were hit harder by disease, but as a tribe, they proved to be more robust. The Cowlitz population was reported to be only 127 in 1887, down from the more than 1,000 earlier in the century. This number has risen to around 1,600 in recent years, owing to the tribe's acceptance of people with 1,16th or more Cowlitz blood as members. The Cowlitz achieved federal recognition as a tribe in 2002 after decades of effort, and since then, new tribal enrollment has been limited to births of current members. After a decade of attempts to try and establish a reservation, it was announced by the tribe in 2015 that 152 acres in Richfield had been set aside for the establishment of a reservation. Cowlitz Tribal Chairman Bill Iall stated in a press release soon after, After 160 years of longing for a reservation within our Aboriginal lands, I welcome all Cowlitz people to come home. We are no longer a landless tribe. The Cowlitz Reservation offers new opportunities in our Aboriginal land and the community which the tribe will deliver from generations to come. Since that announcement, the tribe has opened the Alani Casino Resort and a 250 room hotel which employs over 1,000 people despite numerous lawsuits and setbacks in the process. The term Yakult is derived from a Clickitat word that means in general haunted location. There are at least four conflicting tales of how it came to be known by that unappealing moniker. The most popular version claims that a group of Native American youngsters collecting berries at the spot vanished into thin air, never to be seen again. It was considered that they had been abducted by bad spirits in accordance with their beliefs. In another version, the children are replaced with a beautiful and love struck Native maiden who went into the woods and vanished forever after her father rejected her preferred suitor. J.P. Banzer, an early settler, passed on a third version in 1901 that combines aspects of the first two. He stated in an interview, This is what his one Indian told him, and it's likely what his father or grandpa told him, because they didn't have a written history and stories were passed down from father to son and so on. This portion, where we are now sitting, was once a place where wild strawberries and blueberries flourished in abundance, even during my time. The Clickatats claimed the land and came here to pick berries every year. They once came across a group of Willamies, as they were known. A struggle broke out, and all of the Willamets were slaughtered, but a girl managed to flee. When the Clickatats returned the following year, they heard someone singing the Willamets' funeral song and saw a maiden vanish into the distance. They heard her sing several times. They claimed she was a spirit, a phantom of her ancestors. The Indian term for spirit is "yakult," and this is the form of the territory's name. Another theory, which is likely based on popular superstitions, is that parts of the town were built on top of an Indian burial place. In any event, long before Euro-Americans came, the natives called Yalakul, the Klickitat word from which Yakult is derived to describe the surrounding area and the frightening name, however formed, did not seem to deter them from visiting. When Joseph and Charlotte Eaton arrived in Yakult in 1873, it was the final stop for a family that had trekked across the plains from Wisconsin in 1852, homesteaded a donation land claim on the Lewis River the following year, and then lost everything they had built over the previous two decades in a flood in 1873. They left their Lewis River claim and went on to establish a new farm on Rock Creek, which is just south of the present-day town of Yakult, where they became the area's first recognized non-native inhabitants. In 1876, Joseph Eaton established a post office in his home, which he named Yakult. It must have been a fairly leisurely operation given that the Eatons had no neighbors for the next 11 years. The arrival in 1887 of a family known only as the Garners, who homesteaded 160 acres about a mile away, threw the postal system into disarray and sparked a years-long debate over the new community's name. Mr. Garner, who was known to have five children, also opened a post office in his home that he named after himself for whatever reason. As a result, there were two post offices, each with a distinct name only about a mile apart, serving an obviously small population of three or four households. This, understandably, caused considerable consternation. Because towns and post offices almost always shared the same name, the area around present-day Yakult was known as either Yakult or Garner for the following eight years, the choice possibly depending on where one picked up one's mail. The two and competing post offices finally drew the notice of federal postal authorities and the Garner branch was closed in 1895 after being considered totally unnecessary. However, most accounts indicate that residents in the area, divided in their loyalties, continued to refer to the small village by one of two names, and this practice would continue on for about another decade or two. Although records are limited, the names of a few more settlers occur in early reports of the occult area. Fred and Horatio Farger, also known as Farguar and Fargar, were Isle of Wight immigrants who were known to have sold land in the occult area to early settlers. Farger Lake, which is now dry, is named after them and is located about five miles due west of town. Charles C. Landon and his wife, Catherine O'Brien Landon, arrived from the Boston area in 1891 or early 1992. They purchased 160 acres in 1895 and divided it into 16 lots, which they sold to newcomers as home sites a few years later. This land was ultimately developed into the occult's downtown area. Catherine Landon died in 1936 at the age of 72 with no children. Charles remained in the community until his death in 1953 when he was an astounding 99 years old. Charles Landon wrote to James Monroe McCutcheon, the husband of Mary Landon McCutcheon, who was thought to be Landon's cousin shortly after landing in the He persuaded him to relocate his family from their hardscrabble ranch in Mound Valley, Nevada. James, Mary, and their eight children packed their belongings and traveled north in April of 1892. On an interesting side note, William McCutcheon, James McCutcheon's uncle, was one of the few survivors of the doomed Donner Party of 1846-47. The family took nearly three years to finish their journey, stopping along the way to winter and earn money. They finally arrived in Yakult in the fall of 1894. Details about early life in town are few, but the McCutcheons' experiences are likely to be representative. They discovered a tiny settlement of six families at Yakult, including the Eatons and the Landons. There were enough youngsters to support a school with the advent of the big McCutcheon family. Volunteers immediately erected a schoolhouse when one of the residents donated land, and the tiny little town in the shadow of Mount St. Helens began to take form. In a slightly weird twist, and kind of a jerk move, it was discovered that the donor's land had never been formally transferred to the school when he sold it a short time later. The youngsters were ejected by the new owner, who converted the schoolhouse into a residence. Honestly, who does that? A building was subsequently offered by another family to be used as a school, and a residence for the newly arrived McCutcheon family until they could build their own. In the winter of 1894, Mary McCutcheon taught classes in her living room, but once their first house was finished the following spring, she delegated her teaching duties to others. In 1895, the McCutcheon family donated land from their homestead to build a new one-room schoolhouse, and James was elected to the town's first school board. A dairy farm close to the school, run by the Coles, provided fresh milk for the children's lunches. James eventually built a huge mansion to accommodate his large family, and the family managed a 300-acre ranch where they farmed cattle and horses. He and Mary donated land for the Yakult Cemetery in 1913. Unfortunately, their youngest son, John Calvin Cal McCutcheon, was killed in a logging accident in 1917 and became the first family member to be buried there. Another son died in the same way, and two more were injured while working in that downright risky industry. For five generations, members of the McCutcheon family have lived in Yakult, and there is at least one descendant of James and Mary who still resides there to this day. One of the greatest forest fires in the recorded history of the Evergreen State blazed through over 350 square miles, Cowlitz, and Skamania counties over three scorching days in September of 1902. For over the next century, this burn would be considered to be the worst in Evergreen State history. That would all change though during 2014 when the Carlton Complex fire devastated Okanagan County and surpassed the Yakult burn in terms of size. The fire reached the outskirts of Yakult before turning north, sparing the town site but causing extensive damage to adjacent homes and structures. Before the fire was put out on the 13th of September 1902, it had claimed the lives of 38 people, killed numerous wild and domestic animals, and destroyed at least $300 million in lumber. Burning an Empire, the story of American forest fires, written in 1945, underlined Yakult's close call. The fire tore down the hill and paint began to blister on the 15 buildings that comprised Yakult. Some of the elder people looked at the spectacle and said it was the end of the world, sure enough. The entire population went to a nearby creek and stayed there all night. Next morning, they found Yukult blistered here and there, but intact. The main fire had stopped less than half a mile from the settlement and had been hot enough to make paint run from that distance. The entire populace did not, in fact, evacuate to a nearby creek. The Coles, who owned the dairy farm next to the school, buried their belongings, gathered their children, and rode their horses 20 miles south to Camas on the Columbia River. Other spectacular recollections of those three terrifying days abound. Frankie Barnes, a former state senator from Cowlitz County, described how widespread the fire's effects were. The smoke darkened the sun so that, although we were fully 100 miles distant, we had to use lights to run our mill and the chickens went to roost in the daytime. All day, leaves would come floating through the air and light on the lake. When touched, they dissolved into ashes. Many people believed the world was coming to an end. There were many funerals for victims of the fire. The fire was severe and at least 148 people, including the McCutcheons, lost their homes. As a result of the disaster, the world's largest lumber corporation was compelled to revise its business plan, igniting a years-long boom in Yakult. Whether it was called the occult Burn, the occult Fire, the occult Blaze, the occult cispis Burn, or the Columbia Fire of 1902, the factors that led to this great forest fire could be traced back to many weather factors and just general human carelessness and disregard. Prior to and during the fire, the summer of 1902 had unusually warm but not sweltering temperatures. During the first 12 days of September, the maximum temperatures at three adjacent stations, Centralia, Vancouver, and Hood River, Oregon, were frequently in the 80s, or 6 to 8 degrees above average, and no daily records had been set. Strong east winds are frequently mentioned in historical descriptions of this event, with one depiction even using the phrase, Devil Wind from Eastern Washington. On the 8th of September, some boys attempted to burn a nest of hornets at Eagle Creek, Oregon, and set fire to it, which did not go according to their plan. Other huge fires broke out there soon after, either on their own or in combination with others, including one that was caused by a train in Dodson, Oregon. While across the Columbia River, fires moved from the Eagle Creek drainage to the Bridal Veil drainage. Reports of fires were made in the Lewis River drainage, the Wind River drainage, the Lacamas River drainage, and the Kalama River drainage. The flames were fanned by dry easterly winds and were fed by an extremely dry summer, dead brush, and numerous large piles of slash. According to other stories, the fire was started by lightning, as well as irresponsible campers and berry pickers, hunters, and loggers cutting slash. The fire quickly spread from Bridal Veil to Cascade Locks, Oregon, after being pushed across the Columbia River to the Evergreen State by smoldering debris. It moved 30 miles in just 36 hours, destroying 238,920 acres of forest along the way in Clark, Howlett's, and Skamania counties totaling nearly 12 million board feet. The property damage in Multnomah County, Oregon alone was estimated to be, at over $1 million, a significant sum of money for the time. Over half an inch of ash from the fire ended up falling across the streets of Portland and up in Seattle, it was reported that the sky was so dark that the streetlights around the city became aglow at 12 in the afternoon. Ships that were on the Columbia River were apparently forced to navigate by compass alone since visibility was so downright awful. In both Oregon and Washington, immediate requests for legislation were made in attempt to avoid flames of this magnitude from ever reoccurring. Although some bills were voted into law, they were ineffective. The Dole Valley Fire devastated another 150,000 acres of forest in 1929, and the Eagle Creek Fire in the Columbia River Gorge burnt almost 50,000 acres in September of 2017. Because of the existence of the Columbia River Gorge, which cuts through the Cascade Mountains at nearly sea level and makes the climate of the Portland metropolitan area somewhat immoderate compared to that of Seattle, the forested uplands in this area are prone to being burned repeatedly. Winters in the area are very wet, resulting in quick development of luxuriant forests, but summers bring scorching and extremely dry temperatures from the arid Cascade Mountain rain shadow. The Northern Pacific Railway sold Frederick Weyerhaeuser and 15 partners 900,000 acres of prime evergreen state timberland in 1900. Initially, the corporation was mainly interested in acquiring forested land and selling standing timber to local manufacturers who would then arrange for harvesting. The occult burn required the company to reinvent itself within the span of just three days. The fire ravaged huge tracts of Weyerhaeuser holdings, charring and killing tens of thousands of fir, cedar, and hemlock trees. However, most of the trees could still offer good lumber despite their blackened exteriors. The corporation couldn't wait for others to come in and recover the wood, so it promptly established a headquarters in Yakult to take care of it all. To oversee the vast business, Weyerhaeuser established two companies in Yakult, the Clark County Timber Company and the Twin Falls Logging Company. Hundreds of loggers were brought in to complete the extremely nasty and dangerous work which was expected to take more than a decade. This is how, and why, the Weyerhaeuser Company made the transition from property ownership to logging. The Yakult was dragged into the 20th century by the Yakult Burn, which also forced the Weyerhaeuser Company to modernize. For as long as the salvage operation carried on, the small settlement of about 50 people and 15 structures became a mini-boomtown. The Portland-Vancouver and Yakima Railroad had been working hard to extend its tracks from Battleground to Yakult even before the fire, and the link would be completed in 1903. The rescued wood could then be transported by rail to lumber and paper industries in Vancouver and other locations along the Columbia River. Late in 1903, the Northern Pacific, as it is now known, began a once-daily passenger service between Battleground and Yakult, as more people arrived in the little town hoping to find employment on the salvage effort. The Independent, a Vancouver newspaper, was downright upbeat about the region's prospects. Keep your eye on your cult and battleground. Both of these little towns are now experiencing booms that are almost phenomenal. During the past month, there has been quite a movement in real estate in both places, and a number of new buildings have been erected. The booms in both towns are occasioned by the increase in the logging business. The Columbia River Lumber Company have just established three camps on a spur near battleground and in the occult country, preparations are being made for an extensive logging business. The town would flourish for several years after the salvage work was completed. Both difficulties and opportunities arose as a result of advancement. Applications to open two saloons in the yet Dry Town were presented as early as 1903. Initially, there was no adequate housing for the influx of employees, so many were forced to live in squalor and muck in haphazardly placed tents. On the bright side, hotels, shops, restaurants, and churches were finally built and Weyerhaeuser donated a hospital to the town. The occult population had grown to 500 by 1908, and a two-story school was built to educate the surge of children. Residents then opted to establish the town, and the first council meeting took place on the 31st of July that same year. In Yakult, things were going swimmingly. According to a 1909 article in the Coast Magazine, Yakult was platted in 1903 and constituted as a city in 1908 with a population of roughly 500 people. Today, it is a flourishing and fast-growing tiny city with businesses from all walks of life. A huge tract of rich land surrounds the city, with substantial farming, dairying, fruit producing, and logging. It's safe to say that there's a billion feet of standing timber near and around Yakult and the majority of it is of the highest quality, with yellow and red fir, cedar, and large predominating. This is the Twin Falls Logging Company's headquarters, which is one of the Evergreen State's largest logging companies, with 25 miles of logging roads and a monthly capacity of around 10 million feet. It employs approximately 300 workers and pays a monthly salary of over $25,000. With the exception of the rocky slopes, most of the soil is fertile, and the logged-over fields are well-suited for fruit production and grazing. Vegetables of all types and of the highest quality can also be grown. This viewpoint turned out to be rather unduly optimistic. Nothing lasts indefinitely, and natural resources are no exception to this. Yakult's prosperous days would soon come to an end, its expansion would halt, and it would begin to inevitably regress. Yucult took advantage of its time in the sun, but even the massive burned-over timber resource was limited, and salvage activities were completed by 1910. Green timber logging lasted until 1929, after which it became obsolete. Warehouses general manager, George S. Long, stated on the 4th of December, 1929, that the Clark County Timber Company would be terminating its operations in the Yakult area. He was quite pessimistic about Yakult's prospects. At Yakult, we have two or three worn-out buildings, all vacant and of no apparent value, including an old warehouse, a residence formerly occupied by our logging superintendent, a hospital building which has been robbed of much of its equipment, and one or two very small buildings of no value. In fact, none of them have any value today because Yakult is completely dead with no promise of a future life. George Long's prognosis, like that of the Coast magazine, was overly pessimistic by half. True, the population of Yakult decreased from 520 in 1920 to 295 in 1930. By 1940, the northern Pacific was only running one train every week to Yakult, where the population had plummeted to 207 people. However, that was to be the lowest point. The small town hung on and stuck it out, and in the decades that followed, it began to make small but substantial strides towards recovery. The Civilian Conservation Corps, a New Deal-era jobs program for the country's army of unemployed, was one thing that kept Yakult alive during the hungry years of the 1930s. From 1933 to 1941, the Corps planted saplings, installed telephone lines and lookouts, and cleared snags in the Yakult burn area to build firebreaks against new conflagrations which were not infrequent. These fires that popped up in the area over the continuing years, in addition to others in 1910 that were dubbed the Big Blowup in Oregon, Idaho, and the Evergreen State, all eventually helped to lead to a drastic change of thinking by the National Forest Service when it came to fighting these blazes. It came to be known as the 10 a.m. policy. No matter its size, location, or its environmental factors, any fire that started in the United States would be doused and put out by 10 a.m. the day after it was discovered. It was a risky, culturally significant step. In the following decades, the nation's admiration for the valiant firefighters who came to be known as hotshots and smokejumpers grew. Because forest fires were never permitted, there was a buildup of heavy ground cover and dead trees. Many scientists now concur that the flames of that time period, which provoked such action, prepared the way for the fires of today. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, decades after the occult burn, the idea of letting wildland fires burn naturally and clean the forest of debris started to catch on. Such ideas have inspired testing in small-scale forest plots in states like Montana, where one part is subjected to controlled burns while the neighbor is kept from burning. According to Forest Service fire ecologist Sharon Hood, the condition of the forests that are permitted to burn is noticeably improved. However, with the significant spread of building into what is known as the wildland-urban interface, it is frequently hard to just let these fires burn. This is more obvious than ever in northern Clark County as more people relocate to the forest. Ironically, planned burns and forest thinning, the two main components of so-called enlightened forest management, have encountered significant resistance from scientists and firefighting organizations from California to the Evergreen State. According to recent statements from the Washington State Commissioner of Public Lands, such techniques are frequently expensive and in places like the Evergreen State, the Department of Natural Resources is understaffed when it comes to firefighting and prevention. Ironically, the suppression of devastating fires like the Occult Burn and the Big Blow-Up may now be causing more of them to occur more frequently, leading many in the industry to wonder, can we even learn from our history? The town of Yakol gradually recovered to some sort of normalcy, if not prosperity, in the latter half of the 20th century. By 1950, the population had rebounded to 411 people. Many people farmed, others had orchards or berry farms, a few worked in the forestry business that remained, and some managed dairies or kept beef cattle. People improvised and persevered. However, population growth was modest, and the entire population of Yakult in the 1980 federal census was only 544 residents. But then something happened. The idyllic atmosphere of smaller rural settlements like Yakult pulled many people away from the city as commuting became a more acceptable choice for many working people. By the year 2000, the town's population had risen to 1,055, nearly doubling from the previous total of 20 years prior. The population was predicted to be 1,470 in April of 2009, and it was expected to roughly quadruple over the next five years. However, as of the 2020 census, the town's population was just over 1,600 residents. There were still some hiccups in Yakult's path going forward, though. One such problem was the anticipated closure of the Larch Mountain Correctional Facility, which never actually ended up happening, and was expected to result in the loss of up to 170 jobs in Yakult. This would have further affected the community when you think about the volunteer crews from that facility that have been of considerable assistance to the community over the years, putting in over 640 hours on local projects alone in 2009. Despite certain setbacks, life in Yakult isn't all horrible right now as the town continues to rebound from the last couple of years we've all been dealing with for so long now. The town's proximity to the Portland-Vancouver metro area continues to benefit it immensely. It has its own elementary school, which is part of the Battleground School District, as well as a new town hall, which opened in 2010. And the railroad has returned once again. The Cholache Prairie Railroad is run entirely by volunteers and runs a vintage steam engine that takes tourists on a 10-mile excursion from Yakult to the Lewis River Valley. Many towns and cities, as well as the people who live in them, continually face difficulties, but Yakult has experienced far worse. It fought its way back from near extinction when its population plummeted by half over a 20-year period, survived one of the Evergreen State's worst forest fires in its history, and made it through the darkest days of the Great Depression. Yakult, Clark County's smallest incorporated town, has weathered all of this and will no doubt be around for a long time to come. And if you ever get the chance to visit or stop and stay for a while, it's a great little town with many recreational opportunities. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include Told by the Pioneers, Reminiscences of Pioneer Life in Washington, Volume 3, A Guide to the Indian Tribes of the Pacific Northwest by Robert H. Ruby and John Arthur Brown, Ghosts and Strange Critters of Washington and Oregon by Jeff Davis, The Washington State Historical Society, Yokult by John Caldbick at HistoryLink.org, The Washington State University Archives, The Columbian, The Department of Natural Resources, ClarkCountyToday.com, FireshapedLandscape.com, and ClarkCountyTalk.com. Thank you for listening to episode 86, Ya Cult and the Big Burn. Episode 87 will be released next week. A special thank you goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C.
0: There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queeds and on the Hoh. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow, a land that nature loves so much she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's chimicum and stillicum where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling Skookumchuck. chuck and Moklips and copalis where the razor clams abound A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.